Thank you, Blake. Thank you, Craig. Appreciate that update, and and uh, please do pay attention to the various things that we support. And we, you know, one of our philosophies for missions support is that we try not to, you know, broaden it too far. We try to focus on some specific things so that we can we can care for them efficiently and and use the resources that we have the best, you know, to the best of our abilities to to uh, to help them. So please pay attention to what it is that we're doing there in that. This morning, as you already heard, uh, we've, uh, we're having a unity service coming up, and so we're taking a break from John. We're starting a short two-part series um, where we're going to look at uh, unity within God's church. Uh, that's going to be the focus of, of this study. Um, as you probably know, but if you don't, Eastgate is, is uh, one of the churches which belongs to Pastors United of Bay County. Uh, and that's a group of pastors and different ministries that uh, have joined together to represent that that even in our diversity, we are united in God, united in Christ. And the unity that we want to see develop uh, among the churches in our county, but and beyond, we want to see this. We want to. We, it's our prayer and our hope uh, that a, a unity begins to develop that stretches beyond denominational, doctrinal, racial, or cultural distinctions. So next week, as Blake already pointed out, we're going to be participating in the second uh, unity service that Pastors United has been hosting. It's a time when we all get together and we're just focusing on praying and worshiping God in all of our variations, all of these variations of Christ's church worshiping our one true King. So if you were there last time that we did it, uh, it was, it was awesome. I mean, we had a great time. You were there, right? It was, and it rained on us and, uh, but it was still beautiful. And like at the end of it, there was this rainbow that came out and, uh, there was just something about all of us being there and, and sharing in that singing and praying together. And that's the point. Cause I believe, I consider that to be an important aspect of our witness to the world around us. So an overall, uh, uh, unity, uh, a witness of our unity that really the church needs to reclaim, something that we've lost sight of. So today and next week, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about unity so that we can prepare our hearts and our minds uh, for this, the service that's coming up, and so that also we can see the importance of unity from a biblical perspective. Uh, did you know that while we don't have exact numbers, you can't pin down exact numbers on this, Based on the, the most recent research, there are around 47,000 different denominations and non-denominational churches in the world right now. That is not counting Roman Catholicism and its variations or Eastern Orthodox and its variations. And all of these distinct groups are separated because of differing beliefs about doctrines or practice or sadly, as in our nation, ethnicity. Martin Luther King Jr. famously noted that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And we can kind of look around here and realize that we're not much different from that. Uh, It's tragic that so many of us who claim Jesus as Lord and God as our Father will have nothing to do with the other parts of the family. Uh, And it's, you know, it's, it's largely because... Well, you know, there's an old joke. You've heard this joke, right? Uh, the, a man arrives at the gates of heaven and St. Peter asks him, what church were you part of? And he says, I was a Methodist. And he looks through the list and he goes, oh, okay, you're in room 24, but be very quiet as you go past room eight. 
And another person came up and he said, what church? And he said, Catholic. And he said, okay, you're in room 18, but be very quiet as you go past room 8. And the person said, listen, I get the differing rooms for different, for different traditions, but why do we have to be so quiet when we go past room 8? And Peter said, because the Baptists are in there and they think they're the only ones here. So it's a, it, the thing is, oh, that's an old joke. So the thing is, this sort of division isn't anything new. Paul was addressing it way back. I'm, you know, I'm the Peter, I'm a Peter of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I'm, you know, the really holy ones, I'm of Jesus only. But this isn't, it's nothing new, but it is never, never what God intended. It is never what God intended. Well, how do you know that, Rob? I'm glad you asked, because if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, if you'd like to follow along in our study this morning, find your way to Psalm 133. It's the the first passage that we're going to look at today in our talk about unity. Now, Psalm 133 is what is called a psalm of ascents. There are several psalms in that songbook that were, were sung by pilgrims that would be coming to Jerusalem. And as they'd ascend the Temple Mount to go and observe whichever holiday, you know, holy feast day it was, Passover or Pentecost, whatever it would be, as they were traveling up, they'd sing these psalms to, together. And uh, it's a very short psalm, Psalm 133. It's only three verses long, but man, it packs a lot into those 10 lines. So what I want to do is I want to read through it, and then I want to examine what it's saying. And uh, if you've had a chance to get there, if you're there in Psalm 133, we're going to start with verse 1. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV uh, this morning. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon. It's it's like the dew, as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. Okay, so right off the bat in this psalm, we recognize what kind of unity is important. Unity among God's people. Now, in the Hebrew, it's, it's written in the masculine when brothers are dwelling together in unity, but it, it, it meant to include brothers and sisters. So the NIV words it as God's people. But given the familial nature of the word ha uh, or ach, it would be, which is brother, it would probably be more appropriate to translate this as God's family. When God's family uh, is how good it is when God's family joins together in unity. And all who have believed on Jesus for our salvation are part of God's family. Actually, we're all part of God's church. You know, we've talked about this before. The Christian life was never meant to be lived in isolation. It's always meant to be in community. That's just the way that works. We can't really live the Christian life. We've said that before. It's, it's, It's impossible to love one another when we're all by ourselves. So whether we like it or not, and even if a person completely refuses to gather with their fellow believers, that person is still part of God's church, still part of God's family, even in in an unacknowledged state. And that also means that every church belongs to each other. So Eastgate belongs to Holy Hill Baptist Church, and they belong to Eastgate. And that's, of course, not usually the practice of, of churches, but it is the spiritual reality that, that we are living in. That's the spiritual reality of the gospel. We all belong to each other. 
Now, I know someone could bristle at, at that and just say, but Rob, you know, those guys down the street, they do some weird stuff. And, and, and it may be weird to us. It might even be something that we don't uh, agree with. But just remember, they're down the road looking at us saying, woo, <laughs> look at, uh, yikes. So it, 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 the point of it is it's not a matter of trying to be uniform in this, right? We've said before many, many times, unity is not uniformity. We won't all be alike. In fact, that's the delightful thing about unity because it makes room for such variety under the umbrella of God's grace. We're united not because we're all alike or that we all interpret scriptures exactly the same way or that we all uh, agree with and affirm the same exact doctrines. We are one because we share the same father, because we have one savior and through him we are one family. That's a, that's a statement that gets stated in multiple ways throughout the New Testament. So I want to look at this psalm a little more closely because these three verses are communicating to us way more than just can't we all get along. This short poem takes us all the way back to creation and shoots an arrow all the way forward into a hopeful future. It is as brilliant as it is concise. Now, for us as 21st century Americans, it's a little harder to recognize what this poem is trying to communicate because we're not as immersed in the imagery and the patterns that are present in this, that this poem evokes. We get the idea, you know, right off the bat, God's glad when we're united as his family, but what does some dude's oily beard and a soggy mountaintop have to do with any of that? So let's look at that. Remember, I stated at the outset, this was a psalm of ascent meaning this is a psalm that they would sing as they're going up into the temple. So the temple is the focus of what this psalm is all about. And so that's where we have to think, well, what's the temple? What's the temple? What does it represent? So remember, and we've said this before, nothing is being said that's new here. The temple was the place of God's manifest presence. That's what it was emblematic of. It was the place of, of overlap where heaven and earth meet. In reality, what the temple was representative of was Eden, of original creation, the O.C. And and back in, in Exodus 29 and 30, when Moses was given the pattern for the tabernacle, which would then become the, the temple, and, and, you know, it incorporated all of this paradise imagery, imagery of a garden and, and all of these things that, that echoed back to the conditions of Eden, a picture of heaven and earth joined together. And before any of it could be used... It had to be consecrated. It had to be uh, identified as belonging to God for his purposes. And this consecration was carried out symbolically by pouring oil on it or the person. And it was actually a special oil that God gave Moses the recipe for. Uh, 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 The symbolic act signified that the, the place or the person or the thing was now a connection point between heaven and earth, a bridge, you could say, between God's realm and the realm of this created order. That's why Messiah, when he comes, when we say Christ, when we say Messiah, that word means the anointed one. It means that bridging spot, that connecting point between God's realm and earth, on earth as it is in heaven. So when this special oil was made, it was it was put on the tabernacle and all the instruments that they were going to use and Aaron, Psalm 133 mentions him, the the first priest and his sons as well. 
Every part of that space was marked out as heaven on earth space. And it was all intended to convey God's original intent where God dwells in creation alongside of his beloved creation, humanity. And so why oil? You know, why why pour oil on it? Why not like water? Why not something else, wine or perfume or something? But it's most likely because oil was seen as the essence of life. It was fragrant and flavorful and glistening liquid that emerged when olives were pressed and squeezed together. It was the essence, they saw it, the essence of the olive. So oil, this oil that Moses was instructed to concoct had all sorts of other plants in it mixed in, plants and spices. And it was reminding them that that creation is packed with all of these plants and fruits that can infuse and transform what's mundane into something delectable. So this then becomes symbolic uh, of God's spirit. God's spirit then is infusing and transforming creation into something that is now compatible with heaven. And it points back to the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2. It's amazing that when you start to see these patterns within the scriptures, how much of it keeps coming back to this, like a like the thrum of a heartbeat, coming back to this story, the creation story. The dry, the dry ground emerges from the chaotic waters and it produces all of these plants and trees and fruits all by the working of God's spirit brooding over the waters. So the psalmist was connecting unity among God's family with original creation and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in creation. In fact, the psalm even begins how good it is when God's family joins in unity. And in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1, over and over again, as God is creating things, he stops and steps back and looks at it. And what does he say? God said it was was good. Over and over it says that. In the Hebrew, tov. God said it was tov. And it's the same word that's used here in Psalm 133. This unity is part of what's good in God's creation. That's what he intended for it. The same is true for the dew on Mount Hermon. You know, in a desert region, the the morning dew in those high elevations was life-giving. It was a, a means of being able to survive. And that imagery also points back to Genesis. Genesis 2, uh, 4-7. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plant nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs, or literally mists, came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he needs some kind of moisture to make some clay, right? Then he breathed his breath into the life of, of, of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. The Hebrew word for dew in Psalm 133 means night mist. So it's the same root. And, and, and again, it's all connected with life, humanity born of water and spirit, just like Jesus described in John chapter 3. All of this creation imagery in Psalm 133 is connected, is connecting unity with creation. And it's driving home the point that a unified family is God's, a unified human family is God's original intent for life. This is what he intended all along. This is his plan. We want to know God's plans. We want to know what God's priorities are. This is one of them. Why is unity important? Because it's God's basic will. You know, it's perplexing 
as I look back on church history, I even look at our present church world, it's perplexing that the church will take up so many causes because we're so jealous for God's will, but for some reason, we rarely ever consider this one. In fact, I will be honest, I have been treated suspiciously since I've been talking about unity within the church. And yet unity is foundational to God's will and intent for his people. The call to unify is stamped all over the New Testament. I mean, from the time that Jesus began praying for us in his high priestly prayer that we would be one, just as he and the Father are one, to Paul warning the churches that if we keep on biting and fighting with each other, we're going to devour each other, to John the Revelator seeing all of the nations blending together into the city of God, one city of God. Unity is always what God imagined for his beloved human race. So then what happened? Why are we not unified? Well, the fall. The fall changed all of that. When humanity ate from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we took it on ourselves to become the judge, to usurp God's role and decide good and evil for ourselves. And the result is all of human history behind us and all of the present division that surrounds us now. I mean, from the outset, with Cain and Abel, Unity is shattered and life becomes expendable and the divisions just multiplied from there. But there's a spot, there's a spot where humans get together and they unify for one cause, but it's just to defy God and try to find a, a way to heaven apart from him. And so at the Tower of Babel, God has to, to, to scatter the human race and divide us by language. Keep that in mind. The history of the human race is a history of war, of strife, of prejudice, and oppression. And it could be so discouraging if it weren't for the last line of Psalm 133. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Like I said, this poem, it takes us back to the beginning, to the creation story, and shoots an error forward into a glorious future. For there... In a unified human family of God, the Lord bestows his blessing, even eternal life. And remember, eternal life isn't just, you know, we get to go to heaven when we die. It's a life connected with God right here, right now, that extends on out into eternity. But it's a life that's reunited with who we were meant to be, image bearers of God, connected with God's realm, even as we live on earth. (laughs) And history, you know, history has proven and continues to prove that humans on our own, we don't cooperate with unity. We've got too many of our own special interests. Each one of us has our own special interest group. It's right here in the heart, working all the time to make sure that, you know, it's going my way, right? On our own, we just don't do this. But that doesn't mean that it can't be done. It doesn't mean that we can't be unified. We just need that oil. We, we just need that spirit, that water of life. If, if we could be born again, a new creation, then God's original intent could be realized. And then that brings us to the next passage in our text. And it's found in the New Testament in the book of Acts, the story of the church, God's new family. So if you've got your Bible, if you'll want to move your way forward into the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, please. 
In that story, after the resurrected Jesus appeared to his disciples, he told them to wait in Jerusalem because they were going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. God was going to send his spirit out. He was going to roll down Aaron's beard for them. And, 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 and I want to look at this because this is the account of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I believe this is where that arrow from Psalm 133 lands, right here. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. We'll jump down to verse 4. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. Well, how can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. What a great question to be asking, a question we still need to be asking. What does this mean? I mean, God didn't do just, just to, to, to dazzle us with a little supernatural activity. Woo, look what God can do. Very nice. Got another one? It's not, that's not what God was doing in that. What does it mean? It means that the Holy Spirit poured out like oil on Aaron's beard, has come to do what humans could not. He's come to create a unified human family. The people from all the various nations heard the praises to God in their own language. It's a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. No longer scattered and divided, God sent His Spirit brooding over the chaotic waters of the nations and brought new unified life into existence. And that first church, (laughs) they got it. They saw it right away. And we jump down. If you're still there in Acts chapter 2, we jump down to verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Jump down to verse 44. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together in the temple each day, met in the homes, met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. The unity was imagined in Psalm 133. It was realized at the day of Pentecost in the formation of the church. And this is significant to us. This has a very important meaning to us as his church. God's intention for the church is to realize the spirit-led unity of new creation, of what it is that God is doing here on this earth. And you know, as we, as we read the book of Acts, and of course we're not going to bog down and read the whole book of Acts, but we could and we'd see this playing out over and over again. We keep moving through it. We get about midway through uh, and, and we see one of the startling characteristics of this church here on earth. All of a sudden, 
In the city of Antioch, all sorts of ethnically and culturally diverse people are cooperating and ministering together as equals. All the strident class distinctions of Roman culture had disappeared and instead a new kind of humanity was on display. Not not that the ethnicities or the cultural distinctions were gone, but there was no merit nor devaluation attached to them. They were one family in God united by the Holy Spirit. This was God's intent. It was oil running down Aaron's beard. And it's just so imperative that we recognize the emphasis in all of this. The very first evidence. I mean, I want you to think about this. This is huge. The very first evidence that God gave to us, that the Holy Spirit had come, had had come and inhabited his new family, wasn't just speaking in tongues. It was demonstrating God's ability to cross all the barriers that divide us and draw us together in him. That was his intent. That was the first thing he did. And it's the last thing we attend to anymore. Why a unity service? Why are we doing this, Rob? Why pastors united? What's it? Is Rob becoming woke? Is that what's going on here? I'm participating in this because it is my Father's will. It's His intention for the church to demonstrate what true unity can be through the Holy Spirit. Unity, unity, not uniformity. And I think that's where we bog down way too often. Because uniformity is what we're used to being corralled into, right? And, you know, we hear unity and we recoil and, you know, I don't want to have to do what they do. It's not uniformity. It's unifying regardless of the differences, recognizing one Father, one Savior of us all. You know, totalitarian governments, they enforce uniformity. Cults enforce uniformity. Today's cancel culture, both on left and the right, are trying to enforce uniformity to their way of thinking, whatever it is. As Christians, we're called to something different, something clean, something pure. We're called to unity, a calling to stop focusing then on what divides us and strive to invite everyone to come and sit together at our Father's table, to be the family that was created by Christ's sacrifice for us. You know, that's the key. That's why to me, when Paul in Corinth said that I determined I was only going to know one thing among you guys. That didn't mean that Paul didn't know anything else. Hey, you know where Athens is? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I know. <laughs> no, Paul knew other things, but there was only one thing he was going to make sure was the center of everything he did and everything he said, everything that motivated the way he interacted with his fellow human beings. And that's Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'll tell you, it's really hard to judge someone else when we're looking through the focus of Jesus Christ and him crucified. How am I going to judge someone for whom Jesus Christ laid down his life? How am I going to determine that I am better than my neighbor when I'm looking at Jesus Christ and him crucified for me? 
this takes a concerted effort. <laughs> Everything that I'm saying here, I'm saying in the ideal. Everything that, that we're pointing to, I'm telling you what God's intent is. This is what God wills. This is what God wants. His scriptures reveal it to us. It needs to be a priority that we embrace, that we embody as we move forward as a church representing who he is in this world. It's a vital part of our witness that I believe God is stirring the churches to reclaim. But boy, we've got a long way to go. <laughs> it's not like this is going to happen overnight. It's not like as if we're going to be able to to snap our fingers and see this all take place because it can be, it's a work of the Spirit and it can be a struggle to follow the Holy Spirit and not our own biases. The work of the Spirit oftentimes is very foreign to us. We don't understand what it is. We don't understand why this would be happening. Our biases, man, I know them like the back of my hand. <laughs> those are, you know, those are the things that move me through and make me determine that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Those, I can get that. But this strange thing that the Holy Spirit does puts us together in, in groups, puts us in with people that we don't fully understand or don't fully relate to who are so different from us and yet who claim the same Father that I have, who claim the same Savior that I have. And I'm telling you, this is where it's all going. I mean, we've, we've read the end of the story. That's the old joke, you know. How the world's in a mess, but it's all right. I've read the end of the book. I know how it ends. It's all good. But this is where it ends, with humanity coming back together into one. All the various nations coming together and joining in this magnificent dance before the throne of God, all united as his family, all his children equal before him, covered by the same blood. It's a beautiful picture, but it's hard to imagine how we'll get there from here. It takes a concerted effort. It takes a determination on our part to heed the calling of the Holy Spirit and to leave off of our biases and like I said, we've got a long way to go, but we know this is God's will for his church. So let's strive to be the united family that God calls Tov, calls good and pleasing to him. Right on? All right, very cool. If you're able to, will you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we looked at a handful of words within your word that carry such a profound impact on how it is that we live our lives, where it is that we align our loyalties, how it is that we make determinations on our interactions with the people in the world around us, in the world where you've placed us. Father, I can only speak for myself and I can only speak for, for the community that I'm a part of, but let me just speak it and say it. Father, I repent and I ask your forgiveness that unity hasn't been the kind of priority that your word declares it to be. Father, teach me and show me the ways in which I've, I've, I've been an impediment to unity. Help me, Father, to lay down my own 
biases to lay down my own sense of comfort and be willing to embrace the other in you. Help me, Father. Help us. Help us to fulfill Jesus' prayer for your church that we would be one as you are one because you even said this is how we're going to reveal your glory to the world. So work in our hearts, Lord. Stir our hearts even towards this small moment in, in light of the larger world, in light of history. It's a, it's a blip. It's, it's hardly anything, but it's significant to us here in Bay County that we could stand there united together joining our voices as one voice to worship the one who saved us, the one who loves us. Let your love for the human race permeate everything we do. Let your love move through us towards one another, towards all people. I pray this, my Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Never want to leave 
Become our focus, Lord. Draw it all back to that. Help us follow Paul's example to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let all these other things sort themselves out as we seek after you and unify in your name. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to uh, 